0: History, Lecture 103, Rabbi the, um Yesterday, we ended by talking about the developments at the Coast Cell and the extreme difficulty that the Klai Yisrael would engage with, would encounter in just being able to go to our holiest place in the world in Davin. Uh, so it's exciting that this Shabbos will be able to go there. And I might even say a few words on the subject. Um, as we approach, people should feel um, just how Novel and special it really is. It was denied to people even within our lifetime, with my lifetime at least, that people um, simply had no access. To so yeah, um, you okay, look no, like I'm you're sure. about to. I'm probably not okay, that happens. That's fine. Um, we'll miss you. The. Um, We'll talk about the situation in Eretz Israel now, as we find it in the 19th century, even though we've been tracing it. We know that the, um, what they call the Shuvayashan, the old settlement has been here. Not a large group, not, not, not uh, demographically rich, but, uh, but what you lack in numbers, you make up for. What you lack in quality, you make up in quantity, you make up for in quality. Um, they were to live in Eretz Israel, the to Dor- the Rishonim and the early Achronim required uh, a tremendous commitment. You had to be, as we say, uh, crazy for it and, and ideologically committed to the cause. Of course, nobody would be here if they weren't religiously motivated because why would you in- endure the corruption of the Ottoman regime and the, the difficult the hardships and the poverty? Um, they lived in the four holy cities after Tzvass came into its own, um, Tzvass, Tveria, Yushalayim, Hebron, um, they lived in Yafo and a tiny community in Haifa. Haifa was not a significant place until the British built a port there in the 20th century. Pekin, which they, where they have a tradition that Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai and his son hid in the cave, even though there's no basis for that in the Gemara. Uh, Akko uh, is historically a very Jewish place. Shfaram, even uh, Shchem. Where is Akko today? Is that in Israel, but Arab? Um, Akko is defined in the Marangitian as half in Israel, half outside of Israel. Although the modern day um, post Roman period, I should say, Akko is different than the biblical Akko, which actually was a tell, probably a a few kilometers inland of and north of present day Akko. But we know when the Romans brought irrigation, it meant that people could move from the historical tell out beyond and uh, broaden their horizons. Uh, Akko was misunderstood um, as by the Crusaders who were uh, often were French as um, Biblical Ekron. That's why you see the signs often spelled Acre for Akko. They could sort of merge the words, but one has nothing to do with the other. Biblical Ekron was one of the five Philistine cities, one of, part, part of the, what's called the Pentapolis um, that was considerably further south in the area of Yehuda and, and closer to the coast. Um, so you also had, until 1799, a Jewish community historically in Gaza City, of all places. Yeah, the synagogue has long since long since been destroyed there. Um, they're not we're not so popular there these days. Somehow, the um, um, there is now in the Yeshiva Yeshan in the 19th century. We met the um, we met coming together with the usually strong Sephardi population. We had an influx of students of the. Baal Shem um, coming in the uh, 1700s, starting in 1765, which I might have misstated in an earlier class, and in the second 1777. Um, the later, the Prushim, the students of the Vilnagon will come, bring the Litvish, Miznadish uh, spirit to Eretz Yisrael, and with, into this, uh, 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 this, this interesting, diverse group now, um, you have a new spirit that emerges of nationalism. Now, nationalism has been moving around the world anyway. To begin with, it's the time of nationalism, uh, from the American Revolution to the French Revolution, "Egalite, Fraternite, Liberté," where the people are now. Um, people in the world didn't used to think in terms of national identification. Usually, you were connected to your family, maybe to your greater tribe uh, of people, but not 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 much beyond that. And the uh, Wow. Not much beyond that, but the. This is private. I don't mind. I don't mind bothering you, sir. I know Wait, except except that this is going on for everybody else who's not here. So. I can yeah. Okay, I'll pass on can. Before you leave for a I'll come. Stop by. the call? The uh, Revolution didn't end so well. That really sparked nationalism in there. It didn't end well, but it's it's it's. I'm just using American Revolution, French Revolution to illustrate the spirit of the times. It really goes back to these to phenomena that we've discussed, Baruch Spinoza and the enlightenment and the hyper-focus on the individual, suddenly the individual in the modern day has a new consciousness. Who am I? Where do I, where do I live? Who do I belong to? Am I part of something greater than just myself? So if that, if that becomes the new thinking, so increasingly, people are going to say, yeah, I'm a Frenchman. I'm, I'm an Argentinian, I'm whatever you are, fill in the blank, and that becomes now a source of pride. Jews, of course, have always had that identification. We're not just a religion, we're a nation, we're so many other things as well. And um, there's a new nationalism, and there is definitely in the Christian world, there is a messianism that's affecting the world. They have a notion that is coming back for a second coming. And that, that gives the, the times uh, you know, a distinct messianic spirit. Um, and Jews are addressing this issue that's come up a lot recently of what do you do about the Jewish problem? Well, why not have the Jews go back to their historical homeland and rebuild? And recreate something? And um, we're going to see uh, from the 1870s already, they start to move out of their traditional centers, their traditional cities and villages, and start to form their, their own farming colonies. But, um, and and what the story I hope to get through today, we'll see how much we can accomplish. It's a huge story that you can tell. I'm particularly excited about and passionate about it. You were on the tour in Mosqueribacha, yeah. so you heard part of this, but I'm going to reinforce it and, and give all the details. I don't see how you understand Religious Jewish life today, without understanding this critical era in Jewish life. Now, um, one of the figures to come t- to come into Eretz Yisrael during this time, as Kibbutz Galios, as this period of ingathering, the exiles continues, was um, Rav Yosef Zundel. Who we met very briefly, who was the model for the Mussar movement and a student of the Vilna Gaon through his own Rebbe, through Reb Chaim of Olozin, he actually, he would come, and when I tell these individual stories, it paints a picture. There were certain iconic figures who came to Eretz Yisrael, and when others heard about them, they also came. One attracts another, especially when you're a role model like Rav Yosef Zundel. He comes in 1837. He endures great hardship, like many do, but he's coming for Lashem uh, Shemayim reason. He, joined the, he joins the community of the Prushim, the, uh, the Lidfish. Uh, Vilnagon influenced um, community in Mushalaim and then eventually elsewhere. He's asked to be the first, um, the, the first official Rav of the now very large Ashkenazi community in Jerusalem. Um, he, for centuries, there have been official Ravim representing the Sephardi communities, but now there's a large enough Ashkenazi community to have their own Rav who can address their concerns, their Minhagim, which are sometimes distinct from the Sephardi uh, ways of, ways of uh, practicing Torah. Uh, he agrees, but he's reluctant. He says, on condition that I receive not a grush, not, a, not, a, not, a, not any bit of salary. He says, I want no honor, I want no distinction, uh, nothing nothing for me. He said, also, once you can get a better guy for the job, I don't feel I'm qualified. Once you get a better person for the job, I'm gone. Rav Yosef Zundel of Salant, moving to Eretz in 1837, um, said one, as his condition. I, better, right, no, I don't did. want to think very much. Say it again. Is he the one that you actually um, that they did, that did get replaced by like, his nephew? Or is that someone That's exactly right. I mentioned it when I, when I mentioned the precursor to the Muslim movement, so he came up, but now I'm talking about, I'm trying to paint a picture of um, the, this, the development of Eretz Yisrael uh, in the 19th century, and we're going to lead into this huge break, the Pomo the, the Shemitah, the Shemitah controversy, which is, you know, the excuse, but, but really the story of the breakup of the different groups of Jews, particularly religious Jews and in the, in the different uh, factions that still exist, still pers- persist till today. Um, he. Uh, Again, he took the job, as we say in Herkyavos, in a place where there isn't the person to do the job, you've got to be the man for the job. He lived in a small one-room apartment uh, in the complex that today we call the Khurva, that rebuilt um, Shul. He lived there. I was thinking it, it adds a dimension when I picture of Yosef Zendel the model of the Muslim movement living exactly in that place. He made a livelihood not from any nothing, nothing official. He sold, get this, vinegar. And that was how he made a living. Good luck. Uh, he most of the time sat learning in the shul called the Menachem Tzion shul that actually was completed the same year that he made Aliyah in 1837. Um, it would be destroyed later in the War of Independence and rebuilt. You can see it right next to the Chorva today. Um, little, little, little shul there. Um, and in, in four years later, when his son-in-law, Rav Shmuel Salant, comes, um, he says, he's a better man for the job. I'm leaving. And, and Rav Yosef zindel officially retired from the Rabbonus. So Shmuel Salant, who is the next incredibly influential, powerful figure, comes to the scene. He was born in bialystok he, he married the oldest daughter of Rav Yosef Zundel, and um, he starts making aliyah. Usually this is a process. People travel for one, two, five years before they actually make it to Eretz Yisrael. On the way, he sometimes they get stuck they run out of funds and they have to sit and make a little bit of money so they can afford uh passage on a boat and then they get to the next place and they have to bribe the officials just to get in and they run out of money because it's not always something you can plan effectively so i don't i'm not saying this is necessarily a small salon story but i am imagining that, that there were great hardships uh and, and that it could easily have have, have delayed the process um, on the way to to Israel, he meets I always like it. Now that we're really knee deep in the 19th century, I like to uh, mix and match all the various personality. He meets the rich man who's in town. His name is Moses Montefiore. And he become they become fast friends when they're both in Kushta, which we know historically as Constantinople or Istanbul. Uh, and why, What is what is Montefiore think about it? It's in the 1840s where Shmuel Salant is traveling to, uh, to Eretz Yisrael. Montefiore is in Kushta on his way. Do you remember this? To go fight the, f- the, for the Jews the in, the, the in Damascus. In da- yeah, right, good. Damascus blood libel. Meaning, you're really seeing history in the making. They're crossing paths as they're each doing their own historically significant activities. Uh, Rav Shmuel Salant in is in his t- t- working for the world of Tyre, Rav Fury, uh, uh, Tafiri, uh, doing a- immense chesed for Klal Yisrael. Um, when he comes, indeed, he replaces his father-in-law in 1841 as the leading Ashkenazi Rav, the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, for almost 70 years. That's got to be some kind of a record. Uh, he was born in 1816 and died in 1909, so not quite a hundred years old. He becomes later, he's a Shadar, a Shalef the Rabbanon, going around the world raising money to support the Jews, the local Jews in Eretz Yisrael. He is a, an activist. In 1860, he founds a tzedakah organization, very famous, called the Rebbe Meir Baal Hanes tzedakah organization. You should know that before those infamous blue boxes of the JNF, the Jewish National Fund, which are great, fine, you can give money to to all kinds of Jewish causes, but um, the box in everybody's kitchen was Rabbi Meir right? of course appealing to the great tzaddik, the the, the late Tatana, Rabbi Meir. Um, He also helps to, uh, he's one of the founders of the great yeshiva of the time, the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. He's one of the founders of a hospital down the way. You've been to Terem before, Lualainu? You've had to go to Terem maybe with a friend or something? You may have been there. It's, it's up uh, parallel to Jaffa Street. So right there, it's right, Tarim is located within the complex called Beker Cholim Hospital. The Rav Shmoh Salant helps found. It was, it's the first um, Jewish hospital and it's a direct response to another activity going on in the 19th century. The missionaries have arrived. I'm gonna get to this Parsha too. And they're uh, finding, they're trying to get Jews to sign up and sign up to their religion. And one of the ways they do it is they build hospitals because who goes to hospitals? sick people, which means eventually all of us have to go through a hospital at one point to give birth, to, to, visit, to visit the sick, to, 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 to visit the dying. Um, and while you're in their hospitals, they can be certain they're proselytizing, they're, pa- they're passing out their missionary activity there. And so the Jews had a major incentive to build their own kosher hospital. And he's certainly at the forefront of that movement, the people holding Hospital. Um, he was one of those who would encourage settlement beyond the walls of the old city, uh, which was a process that we know Moses Montefiore was very central in, vol- in, in, in getting the Jews out initially in 1859 uh, to Mishkenot Shananim. So Rav Shemul is, is really one of the major visionaries and the major personalities, and one of the Gedolei Hador. Um, he had enormous influence in Piskei Halacha. He didn't leave us books. So m- many of those Halachos come to us through his students, who wound up marrying his granddaughter, um, who we're gonna meet later on. His name is Raviyach Yechiel Michal Tokachinsky. He writes a book called the Gesher Haim. He writes the, the, the Luach Eretz Yisrael. He's buried right across the street from us, um, near across from Dr. Toast in the Sanhedria uh, cemetery. So um, the Gesher, the, the, the Rav Tokachinsky cites a number of his grandfather-in-laws, um, *Piske Halacha, when, I love this, when Roshmol Salon dies, Again, after a good long life, he was a great-great-grandfather. Oh, wow. If you do the math, that's, that's a certain feat to pull off. Um, bested, I have to say, in the modern era, when Rav Eliyashu Zatzal passed away, he was, a, he was many years already a great-great-great-grandfather. Do the math, that took a lot of coordination between the generations to ensure that. Not something that happens frequently. Uh, but Klal Yisrael, being Machbid in the Mitzvah of Puravu, that could happen to us. Um, at his funeral, Rav Shmuel said no Hespadin, no eulogies. Uh, he said he said um, only a quick burial, and um, the truth is they had to delay it anyway because there was such, was such a throng. So many people came. He was a beloved figure in many different sects. Uh, among um, um, among those in Jerusalem, that the police uh, had to be were concerned for the safety of the, of, of the crowds that would come, uh, he's buried right near his father-in-law on Harazesim together with many, many tzaddikim. Uh, around this time in 1865, I mentioned this uh, as a footnote, a plague, as many plagues would come, a plague comes and is devastating in Yerushalayim. Many die and it's, they make a famous zaira in the city that, um, from this point on, they attribute the plague possibly to too much kalus rosh, too much frivolity. They weren't taking life seriously enough, especially at their simchas, at their weddings. So from this point on and until today, um, the minaj of the Ashkenazim is to only have one musical instrument at a wedding. Have you ever been to a wedding in Yerushalayim? And sometimes it's a drum, sometimes it's a guitar. It varies on the person, but that's zaira to uh, limit the simcha. Um, even from recordings, no more than one instrument. Um, they are lenient at the Sudasmiths for They sometimes say you can have uh, re- recorded music. Like a cappella is a not, not, it's fine because it's not part of this Zeyra. You know you know sometimes, often they have a guy singing with, the, with a percussionist in the background or a violin sometimes. I've seen to Giva. Was this around 1865? Was that around the time that we? Outside the old city. Um, I mentioned 1859. It's good you're keeping track of dates. 1859 was the first movement of Mishnah so it's early on. And, and it's, it's an important date, especially for the story that, that's about to unfold. Um, I'm still introducing the figures. I'm not done with them, by the way. We're going to still meet many of the great Rabbanim. The Nitziv is going to figure into our story. Uh, the uh, the Rav Yitzhak HaKal Inspector is going to figure into our story. I want to introduce an, um, another Gadol, really one of the, the, the other great, one of the other great personalities of this generation. His name is Rav Yushua Yehuda Leib Diskin, the Maharil Diskin, who would be uh, very choshev Rav over in Lithuania. And he makes Aliyah much later in 1878. Uh, he is married to a righteous woman named Sarah, who's, who's called the Brisker Rebitson. They come, from, of course, from Brisk. Um, she herself in her, had, came from a great pedigree, including her great-great-great-great-grandfather, who was the note of Yehuda. She was also wealthy. She brought a big dowry, and they used the money for chesed. And among the buildings, you can still see the Diskin orphanage. Can you picture? what they call the entrance to Jerusalem right near the central bus station as you're leaving Jerusalem let's say at one of the first intersections if you look up into what's called Kiryat Moshe you see a big prominent beautiful old building is the Diskin Orphanage that they that they built an orphanage a in a place a place where there was unfortunately a lot of need for it in uh, in in the in the, in the, in the wars and poverty that ravaged Eretz Yisrael in the coming uh, century or so, uh, there would be many children who had needed services and they, they, with her money, they built that. They, um, he, Raviskin is an uncompromising uh, figure in the world of Torah. He realizes with all of the, the onslaught of modernity and all of the uh, challenges to Torah, his response um, is to say, we don't compromise. We, 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 we keep Torah the way a Kodesh wants us to. He will then be a major influence on the community of Prushim. Again, the legacy of the Vilnagon is also very much in the air. Um, interestingly, <laughs> later on, the community of Prushim are joined by Hungarians. Hungarians who are also culturally known, Hungarian Jews, to be extremely careful in halacha. If you picture who is the, who is the great prominent rav of Hungary, of Pressburg in Hungary in the 19th century, we think of the Hassan Sofer, and the Ksab Sofer, his son, and many other uh, great great rabbinim in, in the Sofer family. Um, so the Hungarian will, li- will, will join forces, and among other things, they come to build communities and be, be very centrally involved in some of the new communities, including the fifth community outside the old city walls, named for a pasuk by Yitzchak Avinu called Mea Sha'arim, They'll be centrally involved, and um, the students of the Disc Diskin will uh, originally. Mayasharim was not what we think of it today. This 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 bastion of Torah living It was actually among the most modern places. It was the first uh, place with running water and a garden, and they even had the first movie theater uh, in Ernest Israel. But after Is World one now? No, after World War One, the. Um, the Prushim would take over there, and the students of the Maor would take over and create the very isolationist, deliberately, uh, you know, Torah-focused nature that created Meir Sharim as we know it today. So you think of the Maor and his influence. Um, quick detour: on What's going on in Eretz Israel? So I mentioned this briefly yesterday. Um, in 1831, the ruler of Egypt was a fellow by the name of Muhammad Ali. Uh, more famous than the contemporary boxer, oh, okay. even though you know you know uh, the, his namesake, the boxer. Is this he more famous, though? What's that? Is he more famous, he might be more... Well, maybe more significant. More right, with celebrity culture today, I defy it's true. The celebrities have it down. Um, how do we say, um, more important. <laughs> he conquers Eretz Israel. It only lasts nine years, but it's important to understand that the Ottoman Empire was starting to break apart at the edges. Uh, it was rife with corruption. The uh, loss of Palestine to the Egyptians was a major blow and reflected their desperation. Uh, increasingly, everything worked with Bakshi. She had to bribe her way because there, there, was, there was less and less money in the capital, in, in, in Istanbul. And um, 1840, the Ottomans rat- rat- managed to retake Palestine only because they get support from the various European powers. Why are European powers eager to help the Ottomans? It's not altruistic. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. The um, the Europeans want a piece of the pie. They want Eretz Israel, because they're vying for dominance in the world. This is the time of colonial expansionism in the world at large. Uh, When you think of that, which which European powers do you associate with the idea of colonial expansion? France, France, Britain Britain, for sure, not Germany. Think about very little, Suriname, almost nothing, which is significant. We'll get to Germany, and that's predicted in the Gemara in Megillah. This famous Gemara I've alluded to a couple of times. Germany's striking is a major power that's that's um, basically stymied by internal friction, which is exactly what the Gemara predicts. But what else? I don't want to say Spain. Spain, Portugal, Amsterdam, tiny little uh, the Netherlands, the Dutch have a major a major expansion uh, in this period yeah Russia Russia is very much in, 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 in the where act where what's that well Russia will be involved in israel at least and why are Israel? because if you're vying for world supremacy you're trying to show that your brand of Christianity is the brand that yashka loves the most well then wouldn't it make a good deal of sense that you take the holy Land where yashka himself was born and lived his life how many times uh, Christianity or the Orthodox Church or and then, and then Let's do that. Let me <laughs> answer the question systematically, even though it's a mess and it's more complicated than I'm going to let on right now. I'm going to I'm going to simplify and say like this: the initial significant break in the church takes 30 place 30. in four no four thirty four. I'm, I'm hesitating on the date for some reason. That might be confusing. I think it's four thirty four, um, where the first the four monophys, uh, monophys, um Sectors break away from the church if, the, when the church declared that Yeshua was 100 God and 100 human at the same time. They did their math and they said that doesn't add up. So that's when the Copts, the Coptic from the Egypt, from Egypt, break away from the church. The Jacobian Syrians, the Ethiopians, and the and the Armenians. They're the first major breakaway from the church. Um, next is what you wait, said. Wait, wait, Hold that group you just mentioned. He is 100 God. They held that that's nonsense, that he wasn't 100% God. But the, the Roman Catholic Church, the mainstream church, had um, so the changed their theology the Trinity, the Trinity to say that. The Trinity was, all, was very much a part of it, but that, that you would say he, that Yashke himself as a figure was simultaneously human and simultaneously Baruch Hu was very hard for a rational mind to take in. No, not true. Not true. Today, if you read about what goes on in Egypt, what you read about the immense persecution of the Coptic minority, the Christian Coptic minority in Egypt, by the Muslim majority. But there are Copts there. No, there are Christians there. But they were the Copts. Go way, way back. Is my point. They did not. They did not uh, become Muslim. It's true that much of Islam would take over the Christian world, but they didn't completely take over. I mentioned early on the last thousand years, to some degree could be understood as a, as, a, as a struggle for domination between the Christian world and the Muslim world and the world at large. Moving on, the um, next great schism is the Great Schism of 1054 that's when the Russian orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, all the Eastern Orthodox break away from the Roman Catholic Church in the West, and then of course the 1516 the um, the, uh, the 95 Theses of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation, and that then Protestantism has its own breakaways within it, Calvinism and the high church, Ang- Anglican church, and the low church, and many other, many other variations. That's a tangent. Let's go back. These various groups then have a stake in defining their version as supreme, and with that in mind, they want to take over little Palestine, because that's where Yashka's from, and that would be a good proof that they could offer that their way is the right way. Uh, they, by helping the Ottomans then demand, uh, you know, quid pro quo, you do for me, I do for you. And uh, they say, you know, now that you have Palestine back, we want a piece of it. Most of these churches that you see, sadly, dominating the Jerusalem landscape are built in this period. And if they're big and obnoxious and their bells, uh, their bells beckon nice and loud, that's intentional. They, 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 that's their way of proselytizing and establishing their own supremacy um, all, over, all over this area. And the fact that you see Russian Orthodox, Together with German Lutheran, uh, together with the Franciscans from the Custodia de Terra Santa, the custodians of and the self-proclaimed custodians of the Holy Land for the Roman Catholics, and many of the others, that's 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 a demonstration of this struggle that they're having. But what it means now, this is this is how it affects our story, is that Ashkenazi citizens of these powers and in in Palestine the main European powers are France, Britain, Austria, Germany, Germany here does have some 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 colonial activity, and Russia. Little bits from Italy and and Scotland and, and a few others, but those are the major ones. And the Jewish citizens from these countries take advantage of their citizenship to get local civil rights called capitulations. And with this new spirit here, the Jews now had certain, as it were, uh, privileges. And that was um, not shared by their Sephardi cousins, who had been living here for centuries, did not have connections with wealthy European consulates abroad. And so they now struggled and felt increasing resentment at their better off Ashkenazi cousins. And what we see in Eretz Yisrael is, is early signs of tension between the Ashkenazi and the Sephardi communities where the, the unfairness, the, the, the lack of equity uh, would, would emerge significantly in this, in, the, in this area and would continue in the coming, in the coming century. Um, now, until these consuls existed, until these European powers set up shop in, in, in Palestine, the Ottoman Empire had affected, had mostly neglected this whole part of the world. It was not well populated, they built few roads, there were, there was, uh, the sanitation was almost non-existent. Uh, they didn't invest any infrastructure and from the time of these consuls, uh, suddenly there were all, roads were starting to be built, suddenly, uh, suddenly all kinds of development took place very, very quickly. Um, If you ever get lost, anybody ever get lost in Jerusalem ever? Jerusalem outside the city walls would be built hastily in a slapdash kind of a fashion because each community bribed and bought from the Ottoman regime their own plot of land, both the Jews and the Christians, and to a minor degree some Muslims, but very little outside the city walls um, in this time. And it was not with urban planning. It wasn't like a grid system of streets that anybody thought about, because each one's vying for their own piece of the pie. And then eventually, the place becomes so clustered that they wind up building roads and having to accommodate, but the fact that it's such a mess, if you look at the, map, the urban map of Jerusalem, it's just, it's just one uh, illogical sprawl, that's explained by this story. Anyway, it's, it's a land grab. That's what's... It's what's it's of the oh, the cities, if you look at them oh. on Google Maps, ridiculous in what way like it just looks like a also a hundred, well also splattered, but that's influenced by the Ottoman Empire that's the way they did things and it's for the same reason they sold to the wealthiest bidder, and they sold that plot of land here and this plot of land there and and nothing really cohered into one greater whole in, in, in any in any uh, reasonable way um there was classically the the chief Sfardi Rav who served the the Sephardim. His title was the Chachambashi. Um, That was recognized by the Ottoman empire. Um, When the Ashkenazim emerged and became more dominant, they had their own Rabbanim, and the chief rabbinate would split officially in 1911 between the Ashkenazim and the Sephardim. Now, um, that's one split, but the more significant split of the 19th century is the story that's gonna unfold now um, I wish more of our people were here today, I hope they listen to this. It's, it's, it's an important story and not a, not a well understood one. Um, was what I alluded to before, was this new spirit of nationalism. What if the old world was the yeshuvah yeshan, the old settlement, so now there is a, an, an emerging yeshuv hechadash, the new settlement, with its own ideology that I'm about to describe to you. The yeshuvah yeshan, was criticized by its opponents as being set in its ways maybe a little bit antiquated averse to anything in modernity they they, they were criticized of course the yeshuvah would have defended themselves yes we are thank you they would have taken it as a compliment because we're 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 upholding the Torah in the in the immense challenges of modernity we're the ones we're the ones holding the torch for, for the Torah until Mashiach comes that's what I see it. okay um, oh, fine. No, I don't. Thank you very much. Although, it sure I'm looks good. I'm sure. Um, when we think of the Yeshiva Chadash, today, sometimes people will translate these terms as Yeshiva Yashan Haredi, Yeshiva Chadash, modern Orthodox, or national religious, Datilumi. Is that true, though? Um, there is that is, it is approximate. There's a there's a certain truth to it for sure, no question that each of those worlds would be the ideological descendants of the former, but they're not parallel. If you were to go, if we were to take a time machine back to the 19th century and say, oh, I'm Haredi or ultimately I'm Dati Lumi, they would look at us and blink. Those would be non, meaningless terms. In those days, they spoke with in terms of Yeshua Yishan, Yeshua Hadash. But there is some clear parallel between the two. Uh, Yeshua Hadash. They would be very, very um, into the idea of reviving Hebrew as a spoken language. They would be proponents of the idea of leaving the established communities. Again, you remember how did the established communities get by? How did they make a living besides selling vinegar? The Shadar, the Shalich, to Rabbanon, people like, like Shmuel Salant and the Chida and many others traveled abroad collected sedekah money Jews abroad were very generous, knowing that the Jews living in Eretz Yisrael were themselves kind of like custodians, looking after our holy places. And um, they came back and they dis- they divided the 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 goods, called the chalukah, the division of, of, of prosperity. But you could imagine it wasn't exactly that people were well off here. Quite the contrary, often the chalukah was inconsistent, it was inadequate, it didn't always come at all, especially in in, in times of economic crisis, 19th century, and the world was a tumultuous time in general, lots of wars, so it's not like it's a steady flow of income. And the Yeshiva Hadash has a notion, let's stop relying on our family abroad, let's move out of the cities and set up our own farming colonies we could be self-sufficient. We could grow our own fruit, our own produce. And what do we need the haluka for? We could we could do it ourselves. It's not such a terrible idea. It's not at all. And it's it's not only not such a terrible idea. I'll add even more to it. It's a great idea. Jews are originally agriculturalists. Our it's not a coincidence that our greatest figures were all shepherds, all its so very connected to the land. And that through the up until the Talmudic period, we were agriculturalists. First of all, you have the opportunity of fulfilling the many mitzvahs and agricultural laws. But all inter- un- interconnected, when you keep these laws and you're tied to the land, you know, you, you know, you know what happens in your life? Inevitably, your tefillah gets suddenly much more meaningful, personal, and urgent. Please, Hashem, make it rain. Because if we don't rain, we might starve next year. Literally, today you know, you know one of our challenges for tefillah for the modern man is we go to the store and we buy these nutritious chocolate bars, and through our chocolate bars we don't need to dab in so much because I could just or we don't think we do we really do we are totally dependent on bar for every step of the way. But we, we feel like we feel like you know I'll just buy a cup of noodles and I'll just subsist on my cup of noodles. It'll take care of me, right? But if you if you if you are living on the land, it's you're, it's conducive to a much greater emuna a munadike, kind of a lifestyle. And that was part of what the Yeshiva was also advocating. Let's get back to the land in a more authentically Jewish way. Sounds fantastic. Now the truth is, is this, these ideas were actually not really developed by the people in Eretz Yisrael. They actually came from some of the, some interesting important figures from abroad. But of course they traveled overseas and they and they, and they came to Eretz Yisrael. And the, I would say of, of all the personalities talking in these lines, there were a few, there was, there was, um, there was a review the Alkali in the area that we think of as, as, as the Balkans today, um, but the, the prominent figure was Rabbi Kalisher, Hirsch Kalischer, who had learned, I mean, he learned with Gedolim, he learned by Rabbi Akiva Eger, he learned, one of his Rebbes, he learned by the Nesivos, meaning some of the great Rabbanim of the, of the early, early 19th century. And... Um, he came out, he'd been writing this for a long time, but he came out with his, really his, his magnum opus in 1862, a book called the Drisha Tzion. Drisha Tzion, demanding darshaning Tzion, Zion being Yerushalayim. And he writes about all of these things, all these things that would, um, would, would inspire the Yeshuv chadash he articulates in halakhic terms. He's writing as a Torah Jew, I mean, he's a big Talmud Chacham. And he's articulating it, he says, his vision includes, we're going to resettle Eretz Israel, we're going to provide homes for all these homeless Jews from all over the world, especially, where are they especially homeless now? And then yeah, moving on, in 1862 already, Eastern Europe with the pogroms and the, and, and the hardships that, that are plaguing us there. Um, he envisions that they're going to have a completely self, self-sufficient agricultural economy. What's the name of the Sermon again? It's very big, Hirsch Kalisher. I showed you pictures on our teal too, but it all I gave you so much information that I'm sure very little could have really sunk in. It was too much too soon. That's why I'm slowing it down and and, and doing this in history. This is all the rehearsal. No no this is before you know, if you learn modern Zionism often in the secular telling of it, often they start the story from the eighteen eighties. Oh yeah. As if nothing came before. Which, right? Right? It's 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 completely distorted. Okay, there's there's a quite an important rich history in the background. They like to write the religious part of it out of it. The religious part of it is the foundation for the interest in Eretz There'd be no interest in Eretz to show without religious connection. And Sirius Kalischer is an architect, some call him the founder of modern orthodoxy. Certainly the Dati Liu I don't know if that's completely accurate. He himself may or may not have accepted that title, but he certainly has new, new radical ideas. Uh, listen to some of his other ideas. He was one of the first to suggest the Jews should develop their own military guard, start their own army to defend themselves, recognizing that it would not be easy. Um, he has an, a whole huge controversy where he generates, he writes a tshuva saying the Jews not only can immediately reinstitute bringing korbanos in the air of the basin mikdash not only can they he says they're obligated to and it's another if you're interested in the topic i give it as a whole separate share i have it recorded online um this approach and the fact that the majority of the, of, of europe the the post scheme of the day heard it of course love the idea who doesn't want to go back and rebuild the basin mikdash and have korbanos but he said even without the base in mikdash <laughs> which has this precedent for too that's not completely uh, far out there that's that's a reasonable idea but some of the other ideas were quite quite radical and ultimately rejected by his own rebbees the nesivos or the hiva acre the chasem sofer and many many others um, well each issue is its own discussion so that let's say you know he says there's is an issue how do we know who's a Cohen nowadays who can offer who's fit to offer do we have yes Bichlau is one of the sub-issues in that, in that issue. In that, in that so on that point, some of the posts can agree with him, some of them didn't agree with him. But he has so many points that have to be cleared in terms of the halakhic problems involved, that by the end of it, nobody agrees with the bottom line that you can actually do it. But that's what that's what he felt. He felt we can come back and do all of this. Uh, he said um, the Aruch Lener, who we're going to see in Gemara tomorrow. The Arach was also one of, the, one of his big critics. But the book makes a big impression, and it influences Jews in Europe, and those, and some in Yeshua Yeshan, in, in, uh, are reading in there in Israel and getting ideas. Hey, you know, especially if you're miserable and impoverished, the idea of going out and starting your own farm may sound kind of appealing, actually. Um, it has a direct impact on a group of not as religious Jews over in France called the Alliance Israelite Universal, yes. Kia. Kiach, which will be a major force in the early days of of what will eventually be the Zionist movement. And with with the influence of Rav Kalisher, in 1870, they found the first Jewish farming school, recognizing that people can't just overnight become farmers, they have to learn how to do it, especially tilling this soil, which has not been exactly fertile for centuries. Arabs are not exactly cultivating the land uh, for fertility either so there's there's going to be a process that's involved and they set up a school called Mikveh Yisrael it's in uh, you can go to the museum today it's in Cholon uh, south of Tel Aviv and um, they do this with Rav Her, with, 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 with Tzvi Hersh Kalisher as being their uh, spiritual mentor um, he actually lives four years after that he's an older man at the time and in, they invite him to come but at the time he feels he's too old to, be, to play a, uh, an important central role in it now, um, and Shul is not the first one. There was also a little bit going down, going on down in Moza, in the in the valley that you dip down into on the way on, um, the, on the way into Jerusalem. There were a couple people who set up shop, starting to farm in the 1870s too, but it didn't go very far. So that, that many don't count that or consider that to be a significant farming colony. Although who knows, and, and maybe it was. Now. Um, there was something called the first Aliyah, this you certainly do learn about in Zionist history. Um, it was triggered by what we, we talked about the other day called the Sufot Banegev, the um, wave of pogroms that ravished the, the Russian the Jewish world uh, in eight, from 1881 to 1884. Uh, Romanians also were persecuted. Uh, there was also an influx of Jews from, of all places, Yemen. So those three countries would feed what would eventually be called the first Aliyah it's not the first Aliyah, but the reason they call it that is because it's the first large influx of foreign Jews to Eretz Israel in modern times. Again, that's also debatable. We talked about the Aliyah of the, of the Hasid and the Aliyah of the Prushim, but, um, but this is how often in Zionist history they render it. Um, about 30,000 total would come during the period from 1882 until 1903. <clears throat> This new Aliyah, definitely people arrived more with a nationalistic agenda. I mean, they were almost all religious of some kind, one shape or or form. Um, Remember, again, nationalism is is sweeping up much of the enlightened world. Their goal is certainly to reclaim the Holy Land. They certainly want to learn Torah and keep mitzvahs. They came, um, if you think about what they called the second aliyah, which is is usually associated with the Jews, the large group that came between 1903 and 1914, before the First World War. The second aliyah is the first official secular aliyah, secular socialist aliyah. It's from that that uh, the kibbutz movement is founded, and many of the... um, Let's say the, fam- the the foundational movements that'll move that'll that'll, that'll, that'll turn into the uh, secular state will be established. But in the first Aliyah, they're almost all religious. By religious, of course, we have to define that. You know, religious kind of like we see religious Jews today. Some are more, some are less. The less are the kind of religious Jews that that's the Orthodox shul that I don't always it in. Kind of Orthodox, right? That doesn't mean that they that they that they're, that they're, that they're um, all equally devout. But there's a, there is a common denominator. Before we get to the second Aliyah, I'm ahead of myself. I'm not going to mention that again. Um, the, the accusation from the Yeshuva Yeshan was, as the ideas from the Yeshuvah Hadash spread, great, a kavod, but you know, insofar as you move away from traditional Torah centers and you adopt this radical project, it was, it was um, wildly ambitious. To the point of almost impossible. And the, the, the criticism of it was, with all of your good intentions, you're going to go and you're going to move to the farm, you're going start speaking Hebrew, you're going to start having your own military guard and all these, all these lofty ideas, tradition's going to suffer in the mix. You will not have the energy yourselves to maintain the same Torah and Mitzvah standards and you certainly will have difficulty transmitting it to your next generation. That was the criticism from the Yeshuvah Yeshah, pay attention to that. It was the central argument, It remains the central argument, dividing the, today we call it the Haredi versus the Dati Lumi, but it's the major theme, uh, under, underlying tension between these worlds. Which vision, which ideology is the, is the ideology that will ultimately transmit Torah to the future? Can you really do that? Yeshuvah Yeshah claimed that if you moved away from the tradition, uh, you will compromise and it will slip. The other figure I have to introduce is a colorful figure. We passed the area where he was buried, he was reburied in the in the modern era, his name is Rashmul Moliver. He's considered the founder of the Chov which is the organization that I mentioned many times the other day. Chovitzion was the pre before there was the Zionism, there was Choveit Those who based on a Apostle, those who love Zion. Um, he's also considered the founder of religious Zionism, maybe even more so than Riv Kalisher. He was the official Rav in Bialystok, um, appointed in 1883, but he was very into this new idea, come back resettle the land. He read Riv Kalisher's works and affirmed them. He was of the same ideology. He tried to convince the local Jews to move to Eretz Israel. There was a new community called petartik Tikva. He said, go, go, go. Um, when the Sufot Benegev pogroms ravaged Russia mostly, and Poland too, um, Rav Kalisher paid a fateful visit to the Baron. To Baron Edmund, Binyomin, uh Ben Yaakov, Ben Amshel, Rothschild, the Rothschild. Rothschild's a family we've met before. Remember the original banking empire in the world? The founder, the father, Amshel, was in, was in Germany, sent his sons to these major communities. And they became, um, they became adjusted to inflation trillionaires. And um, and the grandson of the founder is the Baron Edmund de Rothschild, who's a major player in modern times, especially in Palestine, um, and not yet. And um, like many people seeking funds, you had to go and travel to the Baron, there was a way you did it, you had to wait and arrange a meeting. And um, Rav Molliver, to try to, underwrite, try to fund this new ambitious project, set up an appointment in 1882. It was the first day of Holomoid Sukkis to meet with the Baron. It happened to be the first day that um, one of the founders of a new settlement called Rishon Metzion, fellow by the name of Yosef Feinberg, uh, subject of interesting stories. Um, his daughter was one of the few victims in Entebbe when the Air France plane was hijacked and taken to Entebbe in 1976. His elder, by that point, elderly daughter would be uh, Dora Bloch, who was taken to the hospital and would be murdered by Idi Amin Dada. Um, so, trying to connect all of our historical stories here. So, this Yosef Feinberg was one of the founders of, of Rishon Mitzion, who um, was there the same day that Rav Moliver uh, was there to, um, to to try to raise money from the Baron, and um, the Baron said, um, "Well." Yeah, I'll tell the story a little bit. The, the story goes like this. He, he, he meets with the baron uh, eventually. Um, he tells him a story. He said Moshe Rabbeinu spoke with a stutter. So the Jews should never be able to say that he smooth-talked them into keeping the Torah. The leader has to have some kind of obvious glaring disadvantage so people can't say he smooth-talked us. So Roshua Oliver came from Eastern Europe, he had a long beard, he wasn't exactly groomed, in the fancy style of the baron who was very much <coughs> you know born with, with with all the silver spoons that he was born with he was a man of the elite culture in france uh, and, and it was and he said he said i look like this so that if you agree to help the jewish people in this new project in palestine nobody will ever accuse you of having been uh, persuaded by the likes of me it'll purely be that you decided to do this because of the true uh, the true need of the true purpose of this of this idea, he actually charmed the Baron. They spent a half hour. Uh, in, 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 actually, no. Some say it's a half hour. There's another version that it several hours. But whatever it was, after that meeting, um, Rav Moliver claimed at least that he had shifted the Baron's perspective. The Baron was not a Zionist. Was not even into Eretz Yisrael. The Baron's focus was purely call it philanthropic, he cared about and he knew that they were suffering but he was open to all kinds of alternatives including the possibilities and there were all kinds of possibilities being explored at this point in history. There was a, there was a whole project where they were going to send Jews to Argentina to farm land. There was another project they were going to send them to Siberia have a kibbutz up in Siberia. Anything, something that the Jewish people could have their own piece of this planet, so they could they could uh, live in, in relative stability. The idea of Palestine. The, the Baron resisted at first. The Baron would claim later that the, that Rav Molover didn't talk him into it. Um, but uh, okay, that's that's all debatable. Um, but he, he came around and he saw the possibility of life in Palestine. And could, there could be a future for Klal Yisrael. <coughs> and um, that's a significant time and make a note of that in 1884 Rav Moliver becomes the official president of the Chov and the chairman elected was a secular maskil somebody from the enlightened movement and it's exactly at that point that all these great names from this time that I mentioned the other day the Mitziv and the and the Levi, Rav Soloveitchik and the Ravitsa Inspector and many of the others say ah if the secular are going to be dominant in the Chovei Zion, we can't have anything to do with that. They moved away from the Chovei Zion from this point. Rambamulver embraced it. His attitude was, and if you, I, I keep saying that this is a class, and I'm going to continue this tomorrow too. This is a class in trying to understand the um, foundation of the Haredi world versus the Modern Orthodox world today. This attitude that we can sit together on the same committee with the secular, we can try to influence them from the inside by joining forces with them. We will, we will impact them. They will see the beauty of the Torah approach. Um, that was reflected in Rav Moliver's, uh, you know, staying in the, in, the, um, in the Chovvetzion. He actually, together with Rav Yitzchak Yaakov Yainas, he spearheads the new a division, the branch of the Chovvetzion called the Mirkaz Ruchani, which is abbreviated to Mizrahi, um, most people don't know that. That's the, often the, um, the Israeli term for modern orthodoxy. is Mizrahi, and it's based on this, Merkaz Ruchani, the central spiritual branch of the Chov B'itzion, uh hoping that religious Jews would join the cause. The Yeshuvah Yeshan said, Kol Kavod. that's very beautiful. You want to join forces. You want to influence from the inside. They didn't, didn't agree in tactics. They said that if you do this, you may influence them, but the greater likelihood is they will influence you and your children. And again, this debate, which is really the core debate of what's gonna be for the future, if you join forces with the secular, if you go and you work the land, what will be, what will be the ramifications of that uh, was, was, was a heavy subtext. Um, in the Shemitah year of 1874 to 1875, um, there was really, effectively, only one place in Eretz Israel where it, where it mattered. I mentioned it a few minutes ago, Mikve Yisrael, the farming school in Cholon. Today's, it's in today's Cholon. There was no Cholon there then. Um, and indeed, one of the students, Rabbi Kiva Eger, complained. They said that the Parisian organization, really the barons' new assistants, the administrators who had come there to oversee the... Uh, The farm school, um, they had neglected Shemitah altogether. They just flagrantly worked the land. France, you remember, was a major part of the enlightenment and uh, they weren't so, uh, not all of them were so from, they weren't so careful in in the mitzvahs. And so we already know in that Shemitah year, there there was neglect. Excuse me. Excuse me, wrong, 1881, 1882 in that year. In, in Mikvi Israel, they, they were, they were, ne- they were uh, negligent. Um, in 1881, 1882, there are two other votes, which means farming colonies that are brand new. Um, Rosh Pina was founded in 1878 near Tzfat with uh, members of, of the Holy Community of Tzfat to break away from there. And it failed within a couple of years. So by the, by the Shemitah years, there was really no Rosh Pina. It would be rebuilt sometime later. The second Mosheva, which is sometimes called the mother of the it was Petach Tikva. To realize all these names are based on P'sukim. All the people were religious Jews, idealistic Jews, wanting to go and farm the land, the uh, Sheim Shemaim, and the Petach Tikva, uh, by this, by this, what could be called maybe the first modern Shemitah of significance, because there was the farm, and the Jewish farm, that would uh, care about it. Um, whereas in mikveh Israel, they were negl- they were negligent. Um, they kept Shemitah, meaning they didn't till the land in Petah and they were careful, which sounds like an accomplishment, but it actually wasn't so much of an accomplishment. See, their project had also mostly failed. Uh, much of their farm had been, uh, had, had been decimated, it, it, it became infested because of a nearby swamp, it was, uh, and, and therefore it brought malaria, so many of the members had, had gotten sick and, and some had died and uh, many had abandoned the yeshuv altogether, so it wasn't like it was much of a farm to cultivate anyway. It was kind of keeping Shemitah as a default. But by 1888, 1889, suddenly Shemitah became increasingly relevant because in the, in, in, in the seven-year interim, suddenly there burst on the map eight significant Moshe votes with families and whole infrastructure all underwritten by the baron, Based on that meeting with, uh, with, with Rav, Rav, um, Rav Moliver and also Josef Feinberg, uh, the baron now is underwriting many of these new settlements. And, um, that's, and, and so now the question of what's going to be in the Shemitah year becomes incredibly pressing. I don't know if this, if this means anything to you, because today it feels like it's just one issue of many issues, but um, this became the central issue of Jews if we were to again go back into this time period, this was the talk of the land in Palestine and abroad. Uh, it, was, it was a, it was a, a great concern. Um, what, was, what were the eight vote? You had in 1882 Rishon um, Lutzion, also Zichron Yaakov was founded in 1882, Rosh Pina came back in 1882, Petach um, was Tikva was refounded again in 1883 after a lot of interruptions, Maskeret Bachi where we visited the same year, as was Yesud um, Naciona would also come out in 1883, and Gedeira Gederah was the only one with less religious Jews in 1884. Uh, some call it a secular Moshiach. That wasn't quite right. They just they weren't so careful in halacha. Um, and now there's discussion of how do we get around keeping the shemitah year because you got these brand new farms, and it's not just our daily bread. It's what are we going to do as a general policy, as a, a modus operandi, how are we going to function on these lands? If we don't work the land, the whole project that we've been working so hard, desperate, trying to cultivate with our lives, with our lifeblood, will fall apart. How do you keep Shemitah? You realize Shemitah is the ultimate test of Bitochum. Don't work the land, the Shen says. Trust me, I'll take care of you. Well, if you now match that to the 19th century mentality of the Enlightenment, and the growing sense, uh, the growing lack of religiosity, even it's affecting religious circles, it becomes a true test. And they started inquiring, could you have a hetem mechira? Um, the people who were in favor of the to mechira argued that when Petach Tikva fell apart in 1882, it was really because, of, because they kept the year, when that was a lie. They lied for their own political purpose. Um, it fell apart because of the malaria, because of the swamps. But they didn't like that was that was uh, too inconvenient to admit. The Baron comes in 1888. He pays a personal visit to Roshmal Salant. He comes to him um, on on a Shabbos, and he he comes and they 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 speak to a translator. I I would have loved to be present during that visit because of course the Baron speaks French and the uh, Rav R- 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 Salant only speaks Yiddish and they don't, they don't communicate directly. Um, the Baron comes and he tells Rav Salant, the great Rav in Jerusalem, he said, now the Baron, I have to qualify, the Baron was not himself a purely religious Jew. He was traditional, he kept some mitzvahs, his wife was more traditional, uh, but he respected Rabboni. He was, let's say, what we think of, let's say a lot of modern orthodox might fit this somehow. They, did, they were orthopractic, they do some things, but not all things. But they have reverence. They recognize Torah as the right approach. They would never have anything to do with reform and conservative. Maybe that would be the way you characterize the Baron. And he he was very proud. He said, "On my moshavot, I insist that all the people are, are are religious." If you remember the story with the with the um, in Masqueret Bache, remember I took you to the bell. I told you the story. They had that bell because they want. They insisted on waking up for shacharis. And when they davened, what was considered too long. The baron's French secular administrator complained to the baron, your farmers are davening too long, and they're really lazy, they're trying to get off having to work too hard in the fields. So the baron turned to his pakid and he said, he said you tell those farmers, those Jewish farmers, that they can daven as long as they'd like. Because the success of this whole project in Palestine just depends on Siat HaDishma'ah. If Hashem is not helping us every step of the way and the Jews are not careful in their mitzvahs, the baron understood, the whole thing will fall apart. And he told Rav Salant in this, in this interesting meeting, he said that they're careful with Trumas and Maestros and all the Orla and making sure all the mitzvahs are kept. Um, and he said Shemitah is coming this year. It's May before the Shemitah year, right, a few months until, until, until the Shemitah year starts. He said, all of my Moshevot will be very careful. Um, he said, "Actually, the Baron says when he learned that a Jew from Rishon LeZion didn't keep Shabbos, I kicked him out of there. Uh, I, well, I won't tolerate it." So, in response to all of this, Rav Salant writes, "Va'amarti todaraba." And I said to him, "Thank you very much, you know, for upholding Klal Yisrael's uh, Torah." So um, <clears throat> that was the beginning. Something changed, and I have to say about the Baron again. He was not Zionist. He wanted to help Jews. Uh, he was concerned about the Jews coming to Palestine. He he said, "I'm concerned that the struggle to put an end to the phenomenon of the wandering Jew would result in the creation of the wandering Arab." Interesting comment, uh, somewhat prophetic. Uh, he invested huge sums of his personal fortune to, towards each of these colonies. He was autocratic in his style. He kind of ran the show. But, um, but he also made sure that in every one of these Moshavot there was a shul, there was a mikveh, there was a rav, there was a shochet. somebody to make sure there was kosher food. Somehow, though, by, by the early Shemitah year, the Baron must have changed his mind. And he'd been persuaded, arguably, his pikidim, his administrators, who were ideologically anti-Tayra, and they worked on the barren, and they convinced him that if the farmers don't work during Shemitah, that idleness, their they're sloughing off for such a long per- period would ruin the young Moshevot. They said, you must seek a heter mechira. You must seek permission for them to work the land. There was some minor precedent for it in our sources. You must go and ask Rav Salant for a heter. And indeed, they sought a heter from Rav Salant, and Rav Salant said, absolutely not. Complete for, prohibition. They went to the Maron Diskin, who seconded the, vo- the, the vote. The votes. So back in Europe, under the guise of a French rabbi named Rav Khan, they said, "Let's approach the Gadol Hador in Kovno, Rav inspector Inspector. The last part I'm going to say for today is the approach. They go to Rav Yitzchok Inspector, They say, "It's life and death. Life and death. You don't allow a hetzim mechira." The whole project, the Jews will starve to death, and everything in Palestine will, will, will be destroyed, and our hope for the future, creating a home for all these other desperate Jews from all around the world, will be, will be crushed. There has to be Which you have to realize, um, they lied in the initial Kashi. The initial question was presented as life and death, as P'k'ok Nefesh, it wasn't. Just like the Moshe vote had been constantly failing and in need, need of being bailed out by the Baron, the Baron always bailed them out, had immense fortune. And that way, he wasn't going to let it die, he wasn't going to let the whole thing, the project fail, and he would continue to do so in the coming decades. He wouldn't have allowed, even if they kept, the, if they got no head to Mechira, they simply would have kept the Shemitah year. So they lied in the initial setup of the question. Rav Yif writes, I'm going to give you just a taste of it, it's a fascinating tshuva, obviously I'm really into it, uh, worth, worth, especially in the Shemitah year right now, it's worth looking into. He says in his humility that he said this issue in the halakhic literature had not been talked about widely for hundreds of years. Jews didn't farm the land. He was very tentative. He said, I won't be the sole post He arranged for a committee of people to sign the head to Mechira. Um, and because he had a committee, a great rabbanim, they argued over many of the complex details. It's a big, complicated sudia. I'm not going to get into all the details eventually they come out with a head to some permission that's basically a compromise of the of the long complicated discussion that they had and um they they initially say that only land sold to non-jews could be worked by jews um right only did the, the robot uh, malachos you could make you could uh, make sure make sure the crops didn't die but you couldn't cultivate them but then that was controversial so they revised the original draft i'm just trying to convey how complicated this thing was um, they emphasized it's only a hora Shah, it's only an emergency measure for this Shemitah year, it doesn't pertain in the future. Um, it's contingent on the acceptance of the local rebunding they have to agree, agree upon it. They didn't. We already saw Rasalant and the Maraldiskin rejected it. Um, it was incredibly confusing in the end. Many people who read the tshuva didn't understand it. The baron and his men, his administrators, felt they got what they want. They didn't care about the fine print. They weren't so from. They said, we gotta head to Mechira work the land. Even though the head came with tremendous, it was conditional and proviso, proviso, but they got what they wanted. And they decreed, the Baron initially decrees, all of my vote will rely on the head to Mechira by hook or by crook by force. He insisted that they do it. Wow, it was an explosion. And maybe this kind of thing wouldn't happen today, but across Europe, in the Torah communities, they were crying, foul, the baron is attacking Tyra. The baron wasn't doing. That was not the baron's personality. And so you can imagine how the baron felt. He was, he was called a traitor, somebody who was an antagonist. He, he didn't I'm an antagonist? I got a heter. What are you talking about? And he found himself in the middle of this massive controversy. Um, he backed off because of the controversy, and he wound up saying, okay, my mostly would have a choice. If they want to, they can rely on the heter. But if they choose not to rely on the heter, don't come to me for money. So we rabbi. Yeah. Can I keep you a little bit late? Can I get a little bit more out on this since we're in the topic? The whole Jewish world will be engulfed in the controversy. Um, many rabbis, because of the Shemitah controversy, the Pumash Shemitah, said, I want nothing more to do with this new movement. The new movement is secular. It's an attack on Torah and Torah values. It's not just about Shemitah. Um, the first to attack it was the Netsiv, but later the Beis Alevi, Rav Ruf Shinsham Rafal Hirsch, in, in the last uh, months of his life, would be a major critic of the whole s- system. Um, and of course, in of Rav Salant, and Marl Diskin. Um, some, there were local, not as prominent rabbis who, who, were, who were in favor, but their voice was small in, in, in the, in, 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 against the wave of the Gedolim, Rav Salant wrote, Sheker Amru HaSholi, they, the, the, the people who asked the Shilah lied. They exaggerated the Nefesh, said um, that idea was confirmed by some of the secular Jews themselves. Um, one wrote in one of the newspapers in the Militz, he said, in most of the colony, colonies, the work in itself wasn't that essential. What was more important for some was to show the irrelevance of Shemitah in their enlightened generation. We're not going to be keeping these strange antiquated laws. Max Lillianblum of the Chovei Tzion, one of the secularists, he wrote, if the colonists rest on the first Shviz, in other words, if they keep the Torah, it will give an opening to the Machmirim, to all those stringent Torah Jews, and we'll have no hope in the future of permitting the Shemitah. So really, what's at stake here? We, he, a secularist, says, we'll never have hope of trying to get rid of Shemitah which is his ultimate goal, get rid of Shemitah and all other observance. So really what was at stake was not just Shemir's Shemitah, keeping of the Shemitah year, it was the Shemir's of the Shulchan Aruch and of, of Torah and Halacha in general. The end of the immediate story was about half of the Jews of Petach Tikva relied on the Heter, uh, and the other half did not, and they split. And some of them just didn't work that year, and they struggled, and others did. All the other Moshevot voted in favor of the Heter Mechira, unfortunately. And one lonely Moshavah that we visited, Maskeret Bache, were the heroes who, just before Rosh Hashanah voted, after a lot of deliberation, that they would not accept the heter. They had a particularly cruel manager, the man who was overseeing them from the baron, who went to war with them. He led a war of attrition. He said, OK, fine. The baron's doctor who comes around and makes regular visits, because there's a lot of sickness in these days, lots of malaria and other problems, he stopped coming. No more visits from the pharmacist. The teacher, the shokhet, no longer were there. He sealed the water systems, claiming that he owned them. They had to find their own water somehow. And he sued them in Ottoman courts. This is together with that like, they have no, no, no livelihood. How could he sue them in a court? By Ottoman laws. He claimed that they broke the laws by not, by not, by not working the land. How's that breaking the law of One of the conditions of buying the, the land by the Ottomans is they're going to work it. Right. Okay. Well, that's our defense. Um, they remained firm, but it was. I'm skipping a lot of this story. I can tell it in greater detail, but for now, suffice to say, they received some financial support abroad. They went down to Egypt and were branded by traders. How dare you? Because in Egypt, somehow they, they sided with the Baron. They said, "How dare you? You're such ingrates to the Baron." And um, but um, actually, they were supported, including Rav Shimson Hirsch was the first to make a pledge to Maskaret Batya, it was a f- few days before he passed passed away. So one of the great, last great things he did with his life was to support these heroes in Muskaribatya. Meisalevi, Rav Mir Simchus Dvins, the author of the Or Simeach, the Svas Emes, uh, Rav Hildesheimer, even one of the original signers of the Hetemathira of Rav Kutno, Rav of Kutno, he gave money to help them. Um, many of them considered returning to Russia because the situation had gotten so grave. Probably some of them, they got very, very sick. Some of them probably died during that year. It's unclear exactly what happened. But they said, if we can't keep the mitzvahs in Eretz Israel, why did we come? We might as well go back to Russia. That was the intensity of the affair. Tomorrow I'm going to talk about the fallout of the affair and the wide, the sweeping, wide-reaching ramifications for the future of Kalal Yisrael in Eretz Israel.